From the Defense Acquisition University, this is the Learning Circle. This is the Learning Circle. I'm Anthony Rotolo, and I'm joined again today by Dr. Alicia Sanchez, who, to remind you, is the games czar for the Defense Acquisition University. Now, the last time we met, we spoke broadly about games, simulations, and what it takes to develop game products. Today, we continue our talk, narrowing the focus to the topic of gamification. But before we begin, let me first say, welcome, Alicia. Well, thank you for having me again. I enjoyed last time immensely. It was a great show. I've listened to it a couple of times, and I learned something new each time I've heard it. Now, before we get any further, let's just go back to basics. Let me ask you, what are games? Ah, games. Games are systems in which people can have experiences, as far as I'm concerned, because I come from a simulation background. To me, every game starts with a simulation at its core, and what really makes it a game is layering in things like challenge and goals and perhaps nonlinear structures that add to the repeatability of that system. So tying back to our last discussion, you begin with a simulation. But what makes a simulation a game is by adding other elements, things like having a time challenge or other consequences, other things that make a game a game, right? Yes, certainly. You know, simulations have been used successfully for decades, uh, in commercial and in military, certainly. But simulations are often sort of one-path experiences, and we want learners to be engaged and to be able to hopefully spend as much time with a learning asset as possible. So by layering in the game mechanics, and those are the things like score sometimes, nonlinear goals, immediate feedback, we make those experiences nonlinear in the hopes that we can increase their playability and repeatable plays. So what is gamification then? Ah, gamification is a completely different beast. Um, games are systems, and the only sorts of games that we really focus on implementing here at DAU are experiential games, games that provide people opportunities to have experiences because they can't either have for the typical simulation uh, archetypical rules, because those experiences are either too expensive, they're too dangerous, or they happen too infrequently. Unlike games where we apply game characteristics to a simulation, gamification is applying game characteristics to actual real-world tasks. So uh, an example of gamification would be something as simple as your airline miles. You're going to fly either way, but all of a sudden you're getting something for flying, and that breeds loyalty in a brand. And so we see gamification used really well in marketing. Interesting. So even those things that we take for granted, you know, uh, punching your card to get the free coffee, we're playing a game in a way, and, and we're getting a reward? We, we are in a way. We're getting a reward for something we would have done anyway. And so gamification is interesting because it's based on extrinsic motivation, giving something, giving someone something for something that they were going to do anyway. And so that's sort of where gamification becomes more interesting because we do see more elaborate game characteristics layered into gamification, like uh, badges, which is, you know, the very historical Boy Scout sort of effect. 
you get different badges for being able to do things, for demonstrating proficiency in something. And once you have, you get this badge that everyone can see. And it's it's cool to get those badges. People, well, kids especially, like having those badges. Um, another example, a classical one, is gold stars, right, where your parents will give you gold stars if you behave properly. And once you have enough gold stars, you get some sort of, you know, prize or some sort of benefit for those stars. And so gamification has sort of evolved from a very traditional behavior modification system, if you will, and evolved into something that we continue to use today. So it really taps into some very early behavior patterns and, you know, feels good to get a star. Oh, who doesn't love stars? You know, Mm -hmm. it feels better to get a coffee these days. um, (laughs) Free coffee is good. Yeah, it is. Now, what are people using gamification for specifically? So gamification has been a big buzzword in the learning industry for the last couple of years. There were a couple of reports that came out. Um, Gartner specifically released a report, gosh, in 2000, somewhere between 2010 and 2012, indicating that big industry corporations were going to spend in upwards of, I believe it was, please don't quote me, uh, $15 billion on gamification within their learning products. Uh, two years later, Gartner reported that I think 70% of those would fail, unfortunately. But gamification is something that has become a, a trend in the industry and is unfortunately often uh, mixed up with games because it's easy to see how you might consider gamifying content, which is not what we do with serious games or with video game uses. Gamification really is for the real world. But people use it for all sorts of things that could have organizational impacts. The marketing and the creating stickiness to a brand, getting people to your website, letting them earn rewards. Those are certainly elements of gamification that have been really popular, you know, throughout the history, even down to the S&P stamps, right? You were going to have to get groceries anyway, but if you collected these stamps, if you kept coming back and buying things, you would eventually get something for it. And so it's been, it's had a long history in, in our lives. And more recently, people wanted to start using it to try to incentivize um, both learning and organizational cultural sorts of things. And so we started to see badges, badgeification, if you will. And there are some really great examples of how that can be done really well. But there are also some examples of how the ability to gain badges for a behavior can be gratuitous in its own way. A recent example that I noticed was Starbucks. I don't know if you caught the news, but they've changed their gold card reward program. And it works better for some customers than others now, where it used to be more visit-oriented. You'd get like 12 stars, and then you get a free whatever. Now it's more points-driven, a little more complicated. Basically, they're moving the goalposts. It's more dollar-driven now. The more you spend, it's going to reward the folks that are spending $10 per visit than merely just visiting. So the rules of the game have changed, and people don't always like that. Some people like it. There's going to be winners and losers as you know, as a consequence. But, uh, yeah, another real-world example of this. Yeah, lattes are worth more than a regular coffee, certainly. They are. And so it makes sense that they would uh, they would go with that, that sort of uh, implementation. Excellent. So how does gamification work? So it's interesting. We all know the typical we gain points, just like the Starbucks example, for things that we do or every mile that we spend. 
But when we move into the learning categories, what we're starting to see is two different types of gamification being implemented. One being badges, which is a hugely interesting example that we'll get right back to. But another sort of being just the typical rewards-driven performance output uh, implementation. So for sales, of course, people who sell more get more stuff. And that's a really simple thing. But the use of leaderboards, which is a game characteristic that gamification often employs, is really interesting also. What is a leaderboard? A leaderboard would be something where you get to see not only your score in some given uh, scoring system, but the scores of others. So you can see how you rank related to others. So I'm the king of Kong, basically, yeah. Exactly, right. yes. The very traditional leaderboard uh, specific. But, you know, there is some learning theory that suggests that for those who are competition-driven, that being high on that leaderboard is a goal that could foster a better performance. Certainly with sales, when you see who's top in your region, in a lot of cases, you want to be that. You want to have that recognition. And so there's some evidence that a recognition-based system can enhance learning, or at least performance. Learning is a very different specific word. So some of the things, however, that we're seeing with the badges are particularly interesting. A couple of years ago, Mozilla paired with the Department of Education to work on a, a system called Open Badges. And this was based on the concept that we have a paper trail that is sort of a record of our lives, our entire student record, if you will, but that that doesn't necessarily capture expertise in an area. So on paper, hypothetically, I have a PhD in modeling and simulation. Okay, not hypothetically. I actually have a PhD in modeling simulation, but... Okay, I'm relieved. Yeah, <laughs> okay, the hypothetical, yeah. So I actually have that, but it turns out I'm a games expert. My PhD in modeling and simulations doesn't necessarily demonstrate that I'm a games expert. So there's a lot of different things that I could have tremendous amounts of expertise in that wouldn't necessarily be part of my public record. And so it was an interesting project to try to start a separate credentialing system from the standard educational credentialing system so that people could better represent the areas that they had expertise in. So if I had a badge in the open badge system that said, I am the grand poobah, the czar, if you will, of games, and if other people had been willing to certify me as that, then that hypothetically, and this time I do mean hypothetically, could carry as much weight as having a PhD in games, which I would have, but... They don't exist. So in a way, the idea of you have your resume, but the idea of portfolio yes. is another way of your evidencing your experience. You've got artifacts that show that you are an expert in something. Yes. So it's, and it involves a peer rating component. And so it's, it's not enough to, you know, declare yourself poobah. Others have to agree that you're a poobah. Another example with that sort of thing is when we see comments, right, in a typical, uh, let's say on Facebook, the number of likes is a way of curating that content into something that's viewable. Same with YouTube. The same could be used for expertise in a learning system. The better the comment or the higher rated the commentor through peer interaction could be part of your creation tool but I'm only going to look at the things that's gotten like a thousand likes today because I don't have time to sort through what could be a, a large amount of content. And I really just want to see what 
some could consider to be the gold standard of content. So another example, and a timely one, because last year we saw the sale of lynda.com, the learning service, to LinkedIn. And there we have this marriage of, I've learned this, I've got an evidence, I've got badging or whatever type of record of completion of various courses, and that gets melded with LinkedIn, which is essentially an online resume with a social layer. And I think this trend, we're seeing other sites like this that show your trail of, of experience and expertise. Very, very powerful. Yeah, and certainly I think that there's some sort of expertise that an individual within an organization might have that isn't evidenced in their resume or as part of their their normal day-to-days that might have huge organizational value. So if I was into Irish folk dance and the largest Irish folk dancing troupe was about to become a new insurance client of my large conglomerate insurance company, my knowledge could be tremendously valuable, but that wouldn't be anything that anyone would think to even ask me about if there wasn't any sort of informal or hobby-based indication of the sorts of things that I am capable of. Let's talk about motivation. Now, there has to be a drive to play a game or to learn something in the first place, right? And we hear the terms intrinsic and extrinsic motivation in our industry. Can you speak to their differences and their importance? Uh, Certainly. So an intrinsic motivational construct would be something that comes, of course, intrinsically. So my desire to learn about games was an intrinsic desire of mine. It wasn't motivated by a bonus coming or by other people wanting to, you know, me wanting other people to think I was cool because I was into games. No, I was really interested in it. So I was intrinsically motivated. Unfortunately, what we see in a lot of corporate learning is extrinsic motivation. I have to do this training to keep my job. I have to continue these continuous learning efforts in order to be relevant or to not get in trouble. And that brings in something that I like to call the dark side of gamification. Cue evil laugh. Um, and that is the concept that perhaps gamification is really punishment avoidance instead of rewards driven. It's one thing if, you know, you're getting things for doing something, but what if your failure to go to Starbucks every week was actually costing you points? What if there was a, a negative, a punishment instead of a reward? And that doesn't make sense from the marketing perspective, but it certainly does when we think about gold stars and those sorts of behavior modification systems that also are gamification driven. Perhaps the lack of recognition or the lack of appearance on a leaderboard could have negative consequences. And so I think that there's a a dark side to gamification that I think is fun to tinker around with also. But that doesn't get to the how do you get people to the water, right? And that's, the I think, one of the bigger components in gamification for learning. If we were extrinsically motivating someone to get to our learning content, to complete this course, we're missing a step in getting them to actually digest the course, to be intrinsically motivated to internalize and apply the concepts within that course. So maybe we can get the horse to the water, but once it gets to the water, we don't necessarily know that any real outcomes are going to come of it. And so sometimes we can motivate the wrong things. Motivation to complete courses certainly seems like a pretty good idea because we hope that if someone's taken a course, 
that they have that expertise now. But a lot of times that's not the case, as is with me in college algebra. I certainly did not internalize it, but to avoid punishment, I certainly had to pass it. And I did the minimum amount of work to get through that and avoided any punishments and even got the rewards of getting into college and being able to pretend as if I'm really great at algebra, which I assume people might think that I am, when in truth, I am not. And so I think that there is a a problem. I think that there are certain types of people who are attracted to games and who are motivated by extrinsic factors, and there are people who are not. Badges might mean something to some people. Here at DAU, we have a, an annual uh, information assurance training, and it's game-oriented, and it's interesting, and you can gain trophies for doing things perfectly. And I am perfectly happy getting that check in the box, game or not. I am one of those people who just wants to get through it and to not have to think about it until next year. But often I hear from our faculty and staff that they continued to replay it until they had done it perfectly and got every single trophy in the game. And that's just a a very different type of motivational construct than I carry inherently. I doubt that if I were to poll any of those faculty and staff that the reason that they wanted to get those trophies was because they were so absolutely committed to making sure information assurance was upheld at DAU. And that becomes a really interesting component when we look at these sorts of systems in learning. Can you give me some good examples of gamification that you've seen in learning? I actually cannot, um, which is unfortunate. We have, and to be fair, I have not been actually tracking the research on gamification probably for a year or two. So there might be some brilliant examples that have happened within that time. I can tell you a lot of the examples that I have seen in the past were the very superficial motivate extrinsically someone to the content, reward them for performance, but not necessarily learning. And that a lot of that was still mired with with that some people were motivated by it and some people were not. And unfortunately, that's always going to be one of the most important components of any learning endeavor that we go through. How do we actually get people to want to learn this? So what's the better implementation of it for it to work right? You know, I think that a rewards-based system that is based on your actual demonstration of knowledge in a learning system is great. If you're merely a performance-based organization like sales, then you're making the assumption that performance is a factor of having learned it and that that works really well. And as I said, in marketing and sales in those sorts of very numbers oriented communities, gamification is probably tremendously valuable for their performance. But for learning, you know, in, in its own bizarre little way, grades are the gamification of learning. If you do all of this, you'll get an A. If you do these things, you'll get a B. If you do these things, you'll get a C. And there's different reward structures for that. If you get all A's, then maybe you'll get into a better college or a better job. And so in its own weird way, actually, now that we think about it, your entire life has been gamified. But does that make you a conscientious learner? Does that change your quest for knowledge or for understanding or for mastery of something? Not necessarily, and I think that there are people who it could have an impact on and people that it probably wouldn't have an impact on. And unfortunately, I don't know that the industry has yet really cracked the nut on how to really wind that through 
and weave it appropriately so that the largest gains can be can be garnered from it. Uh, one of the fortunate things is that gamification isn't terribly expensive. It's not as expensive as setting up an entire system-based video game, certainly. And so it's a little more accessible for trial and error, if you will, within organizations. So not to be biased, but there is a current effort at DAU to include some gamification that I think is a little bit more interesting than what we've seen in the past. And it will likely involve badges. It involves one of our knowledge management systems. And so this is us reaching out to the community and asking them to be an ongoing part of the acquisition technology and logistics community in whole and to continue to use DAU as a focal point and a mechanism to aid in acquisition programs for others and to get answers about their own acquisition programs. And so I believe that I believe the currently conceived infrastructure is going to be the ability to again curate content and to get points for people floating up your concepts, people liking it, people rating it is useful to be able to ask questions about your current programs, to be able to find answers, and for people, again, to rank those answers in terms of value and to assign some sort of peer-rated systems that might be considered really valuable in the curation. And so we're really hoping that, that this particular construct for gamification is one that engages people who have an honest expressed interest in what they do in the acquisition community and making sure that, you know, the warfighters are supported and that we're saving as much money as we can. And so certainly those populations do exist out there. And DAU does its best within its curriculum and outside to bring out that philosophy and culture within its individuals. And so this one could actually have have some bones behind it. So We'll uh, we'll see how that works out. That's outstanding. It occurs to me that the social layer that we're seeing on things is kind of another gaming element and a bit of a wild card because you don't know how the crowd is going to react to things. Just in terms of measuring the success of something that from a content creation standpoint, putting something out there and seeing is it winning or losing in the forum of public opinion? Does that make sense? Yes, certainly. And I think that that gets us back to, unfortunately, some bad examples of gamification that we've seen, that social layer. I remember uh, one piece of research focused on a study that was implemented at a large organization, and it was tremendously geographically distributed. And they wanted employees at all of their geographic sites to have better relationships with each other, to understand that they could communicate with each other. So they started assigning points and badges and rewards for interactions on the site. And that could be any type of interaction. So as an example of when you inadvertently motivate the wrong behavior, uh, what they found was that the comments, you would get a certain number of points, let's say, for making a comment. And unfortunately, what they found post-research was that the comments were completely superficial and inconsequential, like, that's great or awesome. And it was basically people gaming the system right, just so that say, they could get they're, points. They're gaming the game. Yep. Gaming the system. And so those sorts of things, you know, I think that the industry has grown from some of those examples. And I think that they're trying very hard to not let Gartner be right about what percentage of gamification constructs within learning organizations fail. But there's got to be 
a better way to gamify that does start to trigger inherent motivation. There's got to be reward systems that aren't so so expressly, extrinsically, and superficially based. And I think that that's going to be a really interesting problem that we see in the next five years. And I think we'll start to see some really interesting innovation in how game design can really start to influence these systems and make them widely appealing for larger numbers of adult learners. Now, let's talk about the learner and how the individual responds to games. If there are differences among individuals, how do they play into the adoption of gamification? You know, I think that, as, as we discussed, there's some people who are either into it or not, motivated by it or not. And that doesn't necessarily cut any demographic uh, borders right now, or it cuts actually all demographic borders. What we're seeing is that women play as often as men in typical gaming, especially in casual gaming, that the generations are all playing equally. But we are also seeing that there are people who either play games or not. And one of the, one of the more interesting studies was, uh, Belenich and Orvis and Orvis, I think, and it was an old, old study. And it was just a really simple study about new recruits into the army. And certainly, you know, 10 years ago, maybe five, there was the expectation that all 18 year old boys do nothing but play video games. And what they found was that a very small percentage of the new army recruits who you would think would be the highest demographic for video game play, especially in the first person shooter range, um, that they weren't necessarily game players, that, that some people really do find other things to do with their time. And for people like me, that's pretty hard to understand. Like I, I don't understand what I would do with all of my spare time if it wasn't for games or the ability to shoot things online every night with, you know, a variety of strangers. But it turns out there are other things to life and people have other hobbies. And anytime we start to try to drag those into our formal experiences, we're going to have an effect that is going to be sort of hard. Like there's a a smaller, much smaller than video game players, because I think that probably 60% of adults and children in the U.S. are probably at least somewhat regular game players, at least weekly, if not bi-weekly, especially in the casual game market, things like Bedouin Blitz and, you know, the typical games that we play. But certainly there's a demographic of of knitters, and nobody has tried to get knitting into their learning. And, you know, that's for obvious reasons. Knitting doesn't have a huge translation. But the reason that we want games in our learning experience is because they're entertaining, they're fun, and People like to play them, and they like to play them for a very long time when they really like them. And that's what we really hope that our learning assets could someday get to. People staying up all night to learn. People who just can't get enough of our content. And that's, in its own way, a little bit unrealistic when we think about trying to motivate someone using something with the glitz and the glamour of a game. That's a really interesting answer. So... Individuals are individuals, and we've got to be careful not to stereotype, especially in our industry where we seem to have bought hook, line, and sinker into the whole generational meme, the whole, you know, this, the millennials versus Gen Y versus Gen X. And when we begin to just broadly stereotype, you get into trouble. Oh, certainly. I remember the last bastion of privacy was broken the first time I got a text message from my mother. Right, because that was a piece of technology that she hadn't previously 
been a huge user of. And then next thing you know, she's on Facebook and she's Skyping me. And I'm like, oh boy, so much for generational. Um, I think that more than generational, what we see is exposure and comfort with technology as a predictor of future use. But that certainly has a, a huge amount of caveats also. Exposure to technology is only as good as ability to afford technology, right? And unfortunately, demographically, what we see is that some, or if not most, lower socioeconomic status households do have game consoles, but they don't have computers. They do have TVs, but they don't have laptops or tablets, right? That the that the value proposition is being placed differently. And so unfortunately, those things can tilt the statistics from the generational perspective to look as if there's certain demographics that might be more interested or less interested. But really, once those things do become available, adoption is probably not as different as we presume it would be. So what advice would you give to organizations that want to get started with gamification? Where would the sweet spot be? Where would they, where would they get results first? So I would advise for anyone who's interested in gamification to first get a really good understanding of what motivates your particular population, your your group. What is it that deep down, what's their heart's desire? And to get a really good sense of whether within the motivational construct, if there actually is an inherent motivational construct to be a successful, productive, and contributing member of your organization's culture. Because if there's not, then you're really doing the lipstick on a pig thing, right? You're just putting something on top of it, on top of an already broken system that isn't going to necessarily yield the results. Fix that first. And once you have, then you can start to think about how you can extrinsically motivate increases in performance, how you can reward real demonstrations of innovation and agility and thinking in your organization. Think about the different sorts of things that really could motivate an entire organization and how not to exclude, you know, people who don't like games and are into knitting, people who don't think that they are going to be successful so they don't even try. Those are some of the problems that can largely contribute to the failure of a gamification system And so those are the first things to tackle before you even get there. Another important piece of advice that Gardner made when they released their numbers on what the predicted failure of gamification systems was, one of the largest reasons that they attributed that level of failure was because organizations had failed to hire an actual game designer. And gamification, in its essence, are still games. You have to be or still use game characteristics, Gamification, in its essence, still uses game characteristics. And there's a lot of finesse that goes into the appropriate weaving of game elements and balancing and making sure that that those are well thought out. And to make sure that you are incredibly focused on what exactly you're motivating. Are you motivating people to do something, to like, to make a comment? Or are you motivating them to actually have a conversation and how those two types of motivational constructs are different? I think it's still too early to say that gamification isn't going to be a large part of our future for learning and in learning organizations. But I do think that there are a lot of different ways that it could still be 
a huge failure, and we want to do everything that we can to make those sorts of efforts as successful as possible every time. Excellent, excellent advice. Thank you very much for joining me today. That was a great discussion. Hope to have you back again soon. I would love to come back. Keep asking me. I'll keep coming. Thank you again. Take care. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening. To catch up on all of our shows, subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Learning Circle is produced and distributed by the Defense Acquisition University.